Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Today I want us to focus on the topic, a providential perspective on the plague. As you're turning to that passage, I just want to share with you some things that I've observed in the past few weeks. Due to the coronavirus, we've become acquainted with new terminology, haven't we? For instance, pandemic. We've learned that that's the worldwide spread of a disease that affects large numbers of people. I'm so thankful that our nation is doing everything they can to slow the spread of that pandemic among us. We've also learned the terminology of social distancing, where we limit travel, cancel events, close schools, visit loved ones by social media and technology, and even worship as we are today in a social distancing manner. And then there's the terminology of flattening the curve. That refers to slowing the spread of the infection to hasten its control. That was all new to me until the past few weeks and perhaps to you. Also in recent days, we've all focused on this virus. We focused on it medically, globally, nationally, locally, personally, but I wonder, have you focused on this virus biblically? Have you given much thought to how the scripture can address the circumstances in which we live? Because I believe that God providentially can use disease and plagues to produce desperation and prayer among his people. And time and again, when God has done that, he has brought a fresh move of his Holy Spirit among his people. Well, I want us to look at some scripture today that speaks to our circumstances in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. The context is that the new temple has been built by Solomon and those whom he has led to do so. They're coming to a high point of dedicating that temple they are celebrating a permanent place where they can have an expression of the presence of God specifically in the Holy of Holies. It is a solemn but joyful time as the kingdom gathers together. And there on that occasion, the political leader of the country, Solomon himself, the king who was so well known, went to prayer before God and before the people and begin to pray about specific situations that the kingdom might encounter and how they might respond that God might bring his blessing upon them. I want us to read this passage. Uh, think about it in that day, but also in our day. How could God providentially use a plague to bring about a sweeping move of his Holy Spirit among his people? Well, here's what we find beginning in verse 26 of 2 Chronicles chapter 6. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, 
when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this house, the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to your fathers. Then if you look to the next chapter, beginning in verse 11, in chapter 7, we find these words. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When I read those verses, it strikes me initially that when there is a drought and a need for rain, that becomes our whole focus, doesn't it? We're focusing on rain. But in the passage, we see that God's focus is on repentance. Even in Solomon's request that God would hear and bring rain upon the land, he precedes that by a turning of God's people to him in prayer. It's also true that during a plague, we might think of our sickness and the threat of that, but God's focus is on our sinfulness. Even as we read the passage, we're reminded that God knows every human heart. And the greatest plague that threatens our person, our family, our community, our nation, and the world is the plague of sin. 
So we think of sickness, but he thinks of sinfulness. And when we are facing a plague, our focus is an overwhelming desire for healing. But his desire that our, is that our focus would be on holiness before him and on eternity and heaven and hell and the things that truly matter. It grieves my heart each time I read a statistic of people who have died in our nation or around the world who perhaps died without Christ. And it's my prayer that he would use these live stream broadcasts of sermons and the gospel of Jesus Christ to give people hope in the midst of their mortality. I want to share a story with you about a plague that occurred in London, England in 1665. It was in 1665 that the Great Plague ravaged the city of London. The cause of the plague that swept through Holland and into England, but really settled in on London, was spread through fleas that were feeding on the carcasses of rodents, and they assumed that the rodents and other animals were bringing the plague. They panicked so extremely in London that they began to kill animals to prevent the plague. They killed 40,000 dogs and 200,000 cats. Unknown to them, in killing the cats, that gave the rodents even more freedom to spread the plague. Every week in London, in each parish area, they would record the numbers of the people who had died. The numbers from all the parishes would be compiled and published and printed in lists called mortality bills. Within seven months... 100,000 Londoners were dead, 20% of their population. Just imagine the loss of one-fifth of a community, one-fifth of a state, or one-fifth of a nation. That's a staggering thought. Now, it's always good to look at the context of an occurrence like that. What was going on prior to and leading into a plague of that magnitude. Well, in 1662, just about three years prior to the plague, uh, the government of England had passed the Act of Uniformity. It was a requirement that those who wished to please, please the government and to preach from the pulpits had to conform to the Church of England. Uh, there was a pushback from that. Many of the Puritan pastors and other nonconformists chose not to comply with changing their message mandated by the government. And so in 1662, in response to the Act of Uniformity, these Puritans and other nonconformists were forced out of their churches and began to preach outside and other places to where people could still hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonderful message of his grace through his death and resurrection. Well, in 1665, because of the continued influence of Puritans and other nonconformist ministers, 
they passed the Five Mile Act to compound the issue of the Act of Uniformity. The Five Mile Act that was passed in 1665 by the government forced them to not preach in the communities where they had preached before. For instance, it prohibited them as pastors from living, preaching, teaching, or coming within five miles of a city, town, or parish where they had previously pastored. Unlike our day with the use of technology, uh, that limited them greatly. Uh, they could do that by publishing sermons in print, but it would be delayed and hard to distribute and very costly. So between the Act of Uniformity and the Five Mile Act, everything was changing within the church and the pressure was lodged, not just against the pastors, but against the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they preached. Now I ask you a question today. Could there be a rebellion or defiance in our nation that would require a response from God? Just think about that. We too could be guilty of rebellion and defiance against God. Just think about some of the things in our nation. Perhaps materialistic idolatry. That seems to be one of the greatest idols of our nation sexual immorality of all forms and shapes, a disintegration of the family as God designed it to be for so many various reasons, a disregard for human life from the act of conception to the coffin. There is a disrespect for life. Right has become wrong and wrong has become right. I ask you another question. Why would God overlook that in our nation, having been blessed so richly with the gospel of Jesus? Let me walk you through some of the dynamics that happened in 1665 during the Great Plague in London. There was a Puritan pastor named Thomas Vincent who wrote about that time in London in a book entitled God's Terrible Voice in the City. That's an abbreviated portion of the title of that book, but it was God's Terrible Voice in the City. Here are some things that he said, and I think you'll see some similarities in our day. The cloud is very black and the storm comes down upon us very sharp. The plague overflows the walls of the city like a flood and pours in upon it. The citizens of London are put to a stop in the career of their trade. They fear whom they converse with for fear that person has come from an infected place. Many houses are shut up and people are shut in. Shops are shut in and people are rare. There is a dismal solicitude, he says, in London streets. Every day looks with the face of a Sabbath day observed with greater solemnity than it used to be in the city. Vincent goes on to say, now the countries keep guards. Lest these infectious persons from London should bring the disease to them. 
It is a very dismal thing to behold the red crosses and read in great letters on the doors of homes, Lord, have mercy upon us. With people passing by them with fearful looks as if they had been lined with the enemies to ambush them. Now there is such a vast concourse of people in the churches where these ministers are to be found that they cannot many times come near the pulpit doors but are pressed to climb over the pews to get to the pulpit. Let me pause to just share this in the midst of what Thomas Vincent is saying. Many of the preachers who were not a part of that nonconformist movement that were still in the Church of England abandoned their pulpits, were silenced in their preaching, and the people were left in doubt and in fear. So these people who were pastors who had been dispersed from their churches began to fill those pulpits, and that's the crowd he's talking about. And in order for them to even get to the pulpit door to enter the pulpit to preach the gospel, they would have to climb among the people over the pews. Would that not be a staggering thought in our day? And then one more statement by Thomas Vincent. Every sermon was to them as if they were preaching their last. The grave seems to lie open at the foot of the pulpit. 1965 proved to be one of the largest death tolls that a city would ever experience due to a plague. But in the midst of that, new life was spreading throughout London in a way that it never had before and perhaps never has since. Although the statistics don't show it. Because many of those converts would come to Christ one day and a day or two later would be buried due to the plague. I'm not trying to create alarm. I'm just saying there needs to be a sense of urgency among us to share the gospel of Christ with those who are soon to perish, perhaps. They tell us repeatedly on the news, this is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, we're trying to avoid that curve that I spoke of. We're trying to have a flattening of the curve. That's why we're broadcasting like this today. But... I want us to focus on some similar realities that should stir a similar response in our nation and in our churches. First of all, the passion in preaching. This should bring a freshness to our preaching like we've never had before. It should shake us from our complacency. It should give us a fresh urgency to share what Jesus has done for the lost sinners of the world and what it means to be a recipient of his grace. One history book in 1965 says this, the face of death and the arrows that flew among the people in darkness, darkness awakened both preachers and hearers. It would be my prayer that within our church and other gospel preaching churches, that there would be a renewed passion of preaching and hearing the word of God. Another similar reality that should stir a similar response would be the cherishing of the church. 
It's sad, but sometimes we don't know what we have until it's taken away. My heart is saddened today that I'm not with brothers and sisters in Christ physically. I can truly say to you that I miss being together in the presence of God. You've heard me say often on Sunday mornings, there's no better way to begin the week than to be in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord, opening the word of the Lord and sharing and celebrating the glory of the Lord. There should be a cherishing of the church. People were crowding into churches in 1665, and I would hope the same would happen when the doors are once again open and we're able to worship freely. But my prayer is that it would continue and it would be a lasting repentance and conversion to Christ. Also, another similar reality would be being mesmerized by mortality. Uh, there's just a solemn look on people's faces, isn't there? When we're at a grocery store shopping and they're, they're looking for food or other items that, that seem less important but are now so important, but, but people wearing masks and people doing extreme things to dispense with germs and to protect themselves. Why? Because we are now mesmerized by our mortality. We know that we are not going to live physically on this earth forever. Now, they say this plague is more dangerous for certain age groups, but I would think that this should make us all think about how mortal and temporary we are on this earth. That happened in 1665. It should happen in our day. Here's one thing they said about this mesmerizing fact of mortality in that same history book. Many who were at church one day were thrown into the graves the next. The cry of great numbers was, what shall we do to be saved? Oh, may that happen in our day, not the filling of the graves, but the crying out of wanting to know what we must do to be saved. And then finally, there's a widening of witness during a plague like this. Because people are thinking about mortality, they many times think also about eternity. And we have an opportunity to say a word for Jesus in these days. When they talk about how fearful they might be, uh, we can talk about the faith that we have, not boasting, but just sharing the hope that we have in Christ and widening our witness should happen within the church. And is that not happening even online today? One historian says this about 1665. All was done with so great seriousness is that through the blessing of God, abundance were converted from carelessness. Religion took that hold on the people's hearts as could never afterwards be loosed. When true repentance happens in a person's life, when a person truly comes to Christ, they will truly be saved and it will have a lasting impact on their life. That's my prayer for all of us that don't know Christ. So back to the passage. I want to close with verse 31. It tells us the purpose why God would bring an end to a plague in response to repentance. Number one, that they might fear you. 
not being afraid of God in a scary sense, but reverently fearing him. That would be one desire that I would have as I pray that there would be a new fear of God in our nation. Because in reality, we should fear God even more than we do the plague. We are told by Jesus, don't fear the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who has eternity and final say over your soul. So it says, first of all, that they might fear you. Then it says to walk in your ways, not just fearing him, but following him. Following closely and fearing reverently should walk hand in hand. If you truly fear the Lord, you should follow his commands. You should follow Christ and become more Christ-like each day. That's the desire here in the Old Testament. It should be a greater desire in a New Testament believer. That they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to the fathers. The third thing would be finishing well. Fearing reverently, following closely, and finishing well. It would be my prayer that our commitment would grow through this time. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ alone, by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins, it would be my desire you would do that today. And so we come to the end of this message. And we want to celebrate the one that gives us hope, and that's Jesus Christ. We learn from Scripture that Jesus came to this earth in the form of a man, truly God, truly man, lived a sinless, perfect life, displaying the message and miracles to attest to his identity. He was then crucified. It looks like a sad tragedy that his life was taken in such a horrific manner. But there's beauty about it for the believers. Because in the shedding of his blood, he provided through his death and his resurrection the gift of eternal life for all who will believe. I love the way Romans 6.23 states it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once you come to Christ, you can never, ever be separated from him. Isn't that good news? Amidst social distancing, isn't it nice to know that there's no spiritual distancing with God? when we walk in fellowship with him. Jesus made the statement none of us can make to each other. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that's good news and it's worth celebrating. And so he's given us some symbols. The bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus sacrificed for us. Putting our faith and trust in the one who has broken for us gives us eternal life. Let's celebrate that together. Then we find those marvelous words 
in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray together. Father, how precious your presence is among us today. Here in my office, in automobiles, open fields, wherever we are in our homes, nursing homes, wherever. We thank you for the gift of technology today to transmit a message about Jesus and about the things of your kingdom. And so, Father, it's our prayer that you would guide our steps this week and that you would help us to follow you more closely than we ever have before. And thank you again for your abiding presence through your precious Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.